Lucy, hand out the secret ballot. I don't understand the reference. Sorry. <laughs> what? My What's that show. reference? Oh my gosh, Charlie Brown. Peanuts. I didn't watch Charlie a lot Brown. of Charlie Brown growing up. Peanuts. They always when they when they voted, it was she always said Lucy hand or Marcy. Sorry, Marcy hand because Lucy was doing it. She'd say Marcy oh, hand now out I the secret it. ballots. You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Alrighty. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The John Chi Show. It's your boys, KJ, Nathan, Patrick, uh, here with another fantastic episode. Fellas, how are you doing? Thank mm. you, KJ. Great. I'm doing mm. <laughs> thumbs up. Got that. That <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah mm. That, that wordless mm. I got that. Mm. I get that. Um, well, yeah, this is a podcast for adoptees, transracial adoptees by Korean adoptees. Um, we typically do interviews or solos. And this week we have an interview, part one of of two uh before we get too far into it uh patrick why don't you tell our listeners what john chi means and why we call ourselves the john chi show absolutely uh john chi means to feast in korean the, in the korean language and what we do here on the show is we talk about what it means to live that korean adoptee life and also at the end of the show we do a little feasting and or snacking and or drinking of some sort of item generally from korea not all the time though um, and hopefully not expired. Yeah, and hopefully, hopefully not, expired, not expired. Generally expired. I'll say generally. generally come on. I mean, if you were to look back on the history, I'd say it's like one third of the time. There's a thirty-three percent chance it's expired. Oh, I'm not gonna go that yeah. high. Yeah, <laughs> it's like maybe one fourth. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's what we do. We have a really fun one for this show, too, not to get too far into anything. Um, but yeah, super excited to be feasting on this episode and to share that with y'all. So that's the show. Bye. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, was gonna, I actually don't have a lot to say in terms of transition for this episode. <laughs> so great. Uh, yeah. Happy June. Happy, happy June. June. Happy oh, Pride. Actually, happy June Pride um, Month. You know what? Last Monday was Loving Day. Happy Loving Day to all mm. of you interracial couples out there. Uh, that's uh, a really important day in American history that no, no one told me about. Um, but without it, I, like Sarah and I, couldn't be married. So uh, it's a big Same. deal. So happy, happy Loving Day to all of our American-based interracial couples. Uh, this week, we Ooh. have a fantastic interview with Mary Bowers, who called in all the way from Korea uh, so it's always a trick trying to get four time zones to line up, especially when one of them is international. But Mary um, kind of blew me away with her story and her thoughtfulness. And it's just like one of those episodes where I was like, man, this is good. And I wish I didn't have to ask questions because I'm busy just like sitting and thinking. But I'm I'm so excited for y'all to listen to it, to hear her story. Um, and then, like I said before, we've got uh, part two coming out next week. Uh, where we get into a proper food section and more about what is going on with her uh, because she's got some unique 
story things that are unlike any other guest we've ever had on the show, um, <laughs> which is, is super exciting. And we also eat a food that is unlike anything we've ever had on the show. <laughs> yes. Um, but you'll have to wait for next week for that. For this week, here is our interview with Mary Bowers. Welcome back to the John Cheese Show. Today it is interview time with our special guest all the way from Korea, Mary hey. Bowers. Hooray. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Hi, Mary. Hi, hi. I'm glad to be here. And especially with the time difference, too. So thank you for uh, for being available. I know it was probably a little bit tough. I don't know what you... You know, you're, it's the morning there, correct? So Yeah, so the way I like to uh, touch base with family and friends back in the States is to tell them that their happy hour or dinner time is my breakfast or brunch time. And so <laughs> kind of works out because we always have good food and sometimes drinks. I start my day with day drinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere. It's you look 15 somewhere. hours apart. 5 o'clock back, back in L.A. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly, it's happy hour, so you have you're partaking yeah. in the happy hour. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, again, we appreciate it. Um, we start our show like we always do with uh, you telling us as much or as little of your story as you'd like. So, if you want to go ahead, uh, go ahead. <laughs> All right. So I'm um, Mary Bowers, maybe I think, <laughs> um, and uh, I was. Uh, estimated at five months old when I was adopted from Korea to the U.S., um, grew up in Colorado. And when people hear that, they're like, oh, you're so lucky. It's so cool. You must have been skiing all the time. No, I grew up in the flat half of the state that everybody forgets about. So uh, <laughs> lots of cows, lots of corn. Some um, tornadoes. Some tornadoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's practically, uh, it's practically it Nebraska. Does not feel like Colorado. Like, it yeah. does not feel like what people usually think of. I do not like snowboarding or skiing because I get cold. I <laughs> overcorrected for the weather and uh, went to Arizona State University for a couple of years before I decided uh, I did not like when the monsoon collided with the dust storm and rained mud into all of the swimming pools. So then I... Uh, Gross. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Like, I didn't even know they could do that. Um, but yeah, yeah it, it rained mud and it was, you know, maybe a hundred something degrees outside. It was Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then awesome. everybody has a pool. So, yeah, all the pools are ruined. Yeah, yeah. Imagine was, ma maintaining like, that. Pool, yeah, pool even, cleaning service. Money. Yeah. You can't even just drain the pool because it's it's all mud. So right. uh, yeah, at that point, I, I went to uh, California and got my degree in architecture and engineering. So hmm. with uh, um, growing up, how how uh, big was the town that you grew up in in Colorado? Was it? OK, so it felt sm like a small town to me because you're mm -hmm. like when you're surrounded by cornfields, it, it inevitably is going to feel small. So uh, but there were about 40,000 people uh, when I lived mm. there. I think maybe it's around 60 or 70,000 now. Um, so a small city, um, okay. but I think um, there's there's always been like a sense of community there. So it still has that, that small town feel to it. Um, I think the challenge with that community, though, is when you are the only person who looks like you mm -hmm. and um, 
the the people around you who maybe do look like you are also adopted trying to figure out how to navigate the world it, it becomes a bit of a challenge in in figuring out well how do I do I fit in here um, but uh, I don't know if I'll ever even have the answer to that question hmm. did so do you did have some other acquaintances or friends that were adopted um yeah so uh, there were a few people i think the unfortunately like the most uh, well-known adoption case from from greeley colorado was one where there was a, a russian baby who had been adopted um he was abused by his adoptive parents and uh it was the very first court case where attachment disorder was used as a defense in the case. So that would be, uh, I guess, Greeley's unfortunate, um, infamous fame to claim with, with adoption. Um, yeah. So, uh, dark got dark real fast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, it's, it's kind of weird. Cause when people look at me, I don't think they understand because I, I think, um, when they when they see me, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely fits. They they see the there's I think there's a place where you are raised and there is a place where you grow up. And so they mm -hmm. see the growing up that happened in California, like that point where you know I kind of moved out on my own, um yeah. figured out what I wanted to do with my life. They see that piece of me. But then I start talking about like rodeos and mutton busting and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, they're what? Like, what? <laughs> where, where is this coming from? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, I think a surprise to people. How did you find yourself navigating this place that you were raised, the person that, that, that the influence that had on you, then going to California and being that place that where you grew up, how did you navigate both of those at the same time as trying to, I guess, maybe understand yourself as maybe Asian American or as adopted or however that journey played out for you? I, I think my very first memories of race uh, were probably around preschool age. So I think I was very mm -hmm. aware of that difference when I was really, really young. Um, I remember the first day of preschool I was so excited. My parents got me so hyped up, like ready to go. Like you're going to play with all the other kids. You're going to make all of these friends. And I got there and I don't even remember entirely what, what happened, but there was a point during, during the day where I started crying at school and did not stop uh, until like well after I got home. And I remember saying to my parents, like, I want the blonde hair. I want the blue eyes. Oh, yeah. And I, I think part of it, too, was like, I realized that the dolls that everybody was playing with, all the other little girls were playing with, looked like them. And yet mine didn't look anything like me. Um, yeah. So I was very aware of that. And then I think at a, at a certain point, it's like you just learn that it makes other people uncomfortable to talk about. I, I remember my parents kind of sitting me down and they're like, well, we love you. We think you're beautiful. So it doesn't matter. But I don't think it really gave me the tools to actually address like all of sure. those feelings. It, it was kind of like the Band-Aid on, on the bullet hole. Right. Um, and so I 
just kind of suppressed a lot of that. And by the time I got to high school, college, I remember questioning, should I even apply for Asian American scholarships to college? And oh my God, I didn't even think I could, I didn't even think about doing that. What the heck? I didn't even think of, oh I didn't, yeah, I wouldn't even have thought that those existed. If you yeah. yeah. And then, school. and then the question was, well, if they see my last name, on the application, are they just going <clears> to <throat> throw it aside and be like, there's there's somebody who's mm. trying to scam the system? Like, am I even going to? Yeah. Should I even apply? And I think I think that that's one of the things about identity that people don't realize. I mean, that's something that has a real world, like lasting impact mm. that has, right. you know, implications for your education, for your finances. Like it's it's not just a how I feel inside. There is that feeling and how it it gets conveyed and how it plays out in in the real world. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that we talk about on the show a lot uh and and in our own trajectory of interviewing other adoptees and things is like that idea of self-racialization. Um and so I mean it sucks that you you felt the sense of like otherness as early as preschool uh and sometimes that doesn't always lead to how we think of ourselves now in adulthood after usually if people are coming on the show, they've, they've gone through some, some version of like, I am adopted and that is an identity that I hold and one that I actively think about. And I'm Asian American, I'm Korean American, you know, whatever. Um, and it sounds like even just in what, what you said, you know, you were raised fairly colorblind, uh, just in a general yeah, sense of like, yeah. well, we don't, we don't see color. We, we just love you and yeah. our daughter and you know, all that stuff, which is great and wonderful. And like you said, it does have some real world consequences because you have to navigate things that you just can't explain really. What was like, what was the moment where you first really began to think of yourself as, um, as an adoptee and like what, uh, caused that? I would say (laughs) the race thing is part of that too, because it's not like you can hide that your kid is a different race and Mm -hmm. the questions from other people, um, there's that sense of otherism. So my parents had to explain very early on what their perception of adoption was. A lot of that was filtered through kind of what they were told by the adoption agency, what they were told by other adoptive parents. But I don't think at that point, just because of the numbers of of how the the cycles and and Korean adoptions worked, um, that they had the resources of asking like grown adoptees. Um, And so I, I would say like for adoptive parents now, I think that's a really wonderful thing. Like we've all grown up, we've gone through this process, they can ask us. Um, but I don't think that was really available for, for my family. And so I acknowledge like, yeah, there were a lot of really messed up things, but they also were doing the best they could with what they had to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, it's just always been something that I've known to be able to like, to feel like I could claim it though. Um, I I think that's, just kind of an ongoing process because it's not just me saying like I'm an adoptee. It's also like the response of the world around me. So even though I think a lot of adoptees have been claiming their identities for years and years, 
the response is, is, is a little bit strange because sometimes it's like this mythical figure, like, Oh, you're so lucky. You must have superpowers. I mean, you look at, um, you know, figures like, like Superman or, or, um, like, let me think, Harry Potter, um, maybe. buddy, buddy, the elf was one that I was oh, just yeah. thinking oh, yeah. a little bit earlier today. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's hard to live up to some of those identities. And I'm not sure that I will ever really fully resolve what it means. I think it's an ongoing process. And part of that just goes with like your natural life cycle. I think the issues are, are different depending on your age, your experience. But I would say when I was a kid, like I just didn't have the, the language or the experience to express how I felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, I like the name it as an ongoing process and it's like an evolution. And mm-hmm. av- obviously when we have people share their stories, like it, it's so different every single time. There might be some similar beats, but it's so different for everyone how they come to that. Did you, when did, did you find yourself at a certain point starting to think and talk differently about adoption and your specific experience? Or was yeah. that just part of that thing that kind of came about? Okay, so I would say uh, there were a couple of, of things that's like you you get, I have sort of this weird relationship with the, the mythical figures and those stories. So there's always as part of the hero's journey, there's like that resistance, like I'm mm, going to totally yeah. reject this piece of me, this piece of my identity. And then you kind of just come back and claim it. Patrick has entered the chat. Yeah. So, so after I, I finished university, I uh, went to, to work for um, several government agencies. And I was also a consultant for the department of Homeland security for, for mm. several years And I really, really loved that experience. I really enjoyed that experience Um, until the the family separation policy kind of went into effect. And that was something that, um, you know, I was, I I think on a human level, I, I probably would not have wanted to support, you know, family separation to begin with. But the way that it hit, uh, it, it struck more like a memory Mm-hmm. as all of that was playing out so that was kind of like my my big like life just comes crashing down trauma like yeah. I don't even know what the hell is happening but this like this doesn't just feel wrong it feels familiar um and then kind of kind of struggled for about a year and then COVID happened <laughs> <laughs> and uh. I did not have to worry about social distancing because people were suddenly pulling their children away from me in the grocery store. And I had this realization of all of that privilege that I had from being adjacent to my white family, my white parents was not my privilege. Mm -hmm. It was theirs. And I, I just received the benefit by association. And so I think the combination of those two events kind of set me on this trajectory. That was the point where I was like, okay, well, um, things are, are getting interesting and getting a little spicier than I like in the States. So I would like to go somewhere. Um, and at that point, uh, nobody was taking American passports. So I was like, I can go back to Korea. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, so I was like, while I'm there, I might as well just do a birth search while I'm while I'm there. But I mean, initially, that wasn't even the intent for coming back. I mean, it was more of like a kind of fight, flight, avoidance uh, in my case. And, um, you know, it's always been at the back of my mind. But yeah, this this idea of like naively, oh, I'm just going to do birth search while I'm there. I did not realize. <laughs> and had I realized at that point um, how much goes into that process and the emotional mm. labor that goes with it, I don't think I would have started. I, I think if yeah. somebody had, mm. had told me <laughs> what it would entail, I, I, I don't know if I would have been brave enough to do it. Mm. which I was not brave and like, I was not brave at all. Like I cried. The only thing that stopped me from crying on the flight to, to Seoul was that uh, we were required to wear masks uh, on the plane. And I did not just want to have a snot filled mask on the, <laughs> plane yeah. Yeah. The, yep. the whole 14 hour flight. Um, <laughs> so I, I really appreciate you sharing that and definitely want to get into that part, but I want to name yeah. something that you just said really quickly because mm-hmm. I literally just had this exact conversation twice uh, the other day. You talked about how you realized when people were pulling their kids away from you that that shield of love or whatever yeah. it is like that our, our adoptive parents place over us, like that doesn't protect us from that. And also that this this privilege that we hold, like we are given that and it can just as easily be taken away. Like we yeah. don't, and I don't think we na- name that enough because at the end of the day, we are not white and we do not right. carry that exact privilege. We carry the proximity to it. And yeah. we want, we're told, and it's reaffirmed to us over and over and over again by our adoptive families, by our, by our communities, by the environment, that that love is enough. Love will overcome. Right. I don't know if that's a You're thing from one a movie, of us. but it feels we like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. You belong and with that, us. And it becomes so foundational and we believe we're made to believe mm-hmm. that that will always be there and we'll be pr- protected by that. And so whether or not I we remember. lean into our identity or don't, then, we, then it's like, okay, we'll be fine. But that's not true because at the end yeah. of the day, that privilege can be taken away just as easily as it was given to us when we were adopted. So I just wanted to I name remember. that because, yeah, that's a, that's a really important point that we don't talk about. I remember being in the store, like I remember being in the store and uh, the first time it happened, I had the exact thought. I was like, I guess I'm not white anymore. Yeah. Mm, damn. Yeah. I had a, a similar moment at the same time as COVID. And uh, I had the question of, does Sarah go to the grocery, does my wife go to the grocery store to get groceries and risk her life, risk potentially getting COVID? do I do that? And also not like, not only risk my life to COVID, but also risk myself to being that exact same thing of like, are people going to be mean at me <laughs> basically <laughs> Yeah, for whatever that means? Cause, and I was living in, in Missouri at the time mm-hmm. um, in a town that was a little larger than the ones you grew up in. But um, yeah, and it was the same kind of thing. And And that was the, that was a moment for me where I was like, this is, this is terrible. And I felt like that just coming out of the, the fog, the, the protective mm-hmm. shroud of my white parents to being like, yeah, this is, this is awful. So totally, absolutely resonate with that. I've definitely felt that same thing mm-hmm. only for my kids mm-hmm. um, and watching them, you know, go around in spaces and think if anyone's, you know, looking at them in a, in a way that 
you know, like that? And, and is there any way I can protect them from, from that or keep them out of like, you know, we kept them out of daycare for a really long time because we were worried that people would, would treat them differently. And also because we didn't want them to get sick. But, um, but, you know, so there's always that, that thing in the back of my mind when I would take them out. And we even one time did get, uh, confronted by a guy at a, at a mall one time. And this was when things were starting to open up a little more, but my kids, all of us were wearing masks. And of course it's an outdoor mall. We're still wearing masks walking around the mall. And some, you know, some white guy came up to us and said, your kids shouldn't be wearing those masks. They don't even really get it anyway. And oh. this was back when the, you know, the, when the cases for kids was very low. And so he was, you know, mm-hmm trying to give me his opinion and what I should do and how I should raise my kids. And, and of course, in a way I felt being, I was getting targeted um, because I was wearing, I, other people were wearing masks, but for some reason he targeted me and I just said, thank you and moved on. I didn't want to I feel like and, the mask yeah. conversation was very different for, for Asians during the pandemic than for other mm-hmm. groups of people, because the first realization that I realized, like when, when I realized that COVID was going to be a thing, mm-hmm. I was in Romania at the airport and this was maybe late January, early February of 2020. And there was a Japanese guy who walked up to me and he was like, why aren't you wearing a mask? Don't you know what's happening in China? And, uh, I mean, at that point, like nobody had shut down their economy. Nobody, right, yeah. you know, it it hadn't even been officially declared a pandemic. Um, but he seemed really concerned. And I was like, thanks for your concern. But like, you're the only one here who's wearing a mask. And he said, no, no, I don't think you understand. It's different for you. Because, you know, this came from, this is coming from China. People might see your face and try to hurt you. So his Damn. thinking was not about virus yeah. at, at all at that point. And that was kind of the, oh my God, moment of, I, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say. Like those moments just take your breath away. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I'm really grateful that he said something, but it did give me a, a, a very different mindset on, on how to approach um approach my interactions with the world through that time frame. Well, and that's so interesting too, because I remember when the mask thing started happening, I was like, in my head, I was like, oh yeah, Koreans and Japanese and Chinese people, like they got the mask thing down. Like no worries. They're like all mm-hmm. used to this, whatever. And so like, I'm seeing like half of America complain about wearing masks and worrying about like suffocating from the lack of oxygen that they would receive, whatever. And I was like, I felt more Asian mm-hmm. by wearing a mask and then also like way more Asian, not in a good way for wearing yeah. a mask, you know, which I think yeah. is, is, is rough. Um, so yeah, that, it was just, man, what a, what a weird time. So I don't, <laughs> I don't understand how, like why you were in Romania, but I'm actually more curious about, this is very funny. I was, like, I was literally there. I was there to eat cupcakes. <laughs> Amazing. Hey. Okay, so <laughs> world traveling for food and things, but I'm curious. Uh, so you you decide to go to Korea. What? How did you feel about 
Korea and being Korean at the time. Like I grew up very aware of being Korean and really loved being Korean for a lot of other adoptees. Um, Korean adoptees, they have mixed feelings about being Korean or, or being like thinking about like the, the country. Um, what was your thought, your headspace going back besides just like, I just need to get out of America and this place will take me. <laughs> I think, I think for me, it was, it was difficult because there's a lot of self-hatred there. Like you learn mm. that it makes people uncomfortable to talk about or acknowledge. So then by extension, it became, okay, well, that part of me is not acceptable. The Korean me is not acceptable. So therefore Korea is not acceptable. Um, I, I had, like I would say the the relationship with my adoptive family at that point too was not great. My adoptive mom reacted pretty harshly uh, when I told her that I was returning to Korea. Um, I mean, to the the point where it was like, okay, have a nice life, and then hung up the uh, phone and didn't yeah. we didn't talk to each other for several months. Um, she's had her own process and has definitely come around. Um, but it's taken a lot. It's taken a lot. And so to, to realize that I don't have that family support, I'm doing this on my own. I sold all of my stuff, by the way, too, like everything that I owned that was not like photographs, sentimental stuff. Like yeah. I, I sold all of it, um, to, to come because it was important for whatever reason to, to be here. And I, the way that I would explain it, like I've been really fascinated with animals uh, who return to their birthplace because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, humans are also animals. We're part of nature too. And so it's usually like aquatic animals, like penguins say, like or salmon, like salmon sea turtles. <laughs> um, I think elephants are the land animal exception. And um, generally, there's three reasons that animals return home. And one is to give birth. Another is to die. Um, I am hoping that the second one is definitely not true. I don't have plans of giving birth anytime soon. It's not either. A... <laughs> <laughs> that would be a that would be a surprise. Uh, <laughs> but the third reason is under acute stress. And I think mm global pandemic, everything that went with the pandemic that was happening, not just in the States, but worldwide. I think that's definitely like, it counts as acute stress. And the reason that animals oh, was that returned, uh, stressful for you? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Like, uh, I think when I'm super old, I'll just explain to, to all the kids. I'll be like, yeah, there was just one day when everybody in the world decided to stop going to work. And we all decided Everyone like, took we're a just going to like, for two we're going to stay home for two years and bake bread and <laughs> watch crappy TV. It was so chill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the acute stress, the reason animals do this is because if a location um, was, uh, I guess, if the location that they were born had the resources to support life in the first place, they instinctually return to that same place because they know that the resources are there. Yeah. And I would say that that has been like very much my experience with Korea. And what led you to executing 
your birth search, which because you said you was like, I, I just oh went up, like, I'm just gonna do a birth search. It's just like you know, like going into it like that. Like what led to that, which eventually I think put you on this path to what we're gonna talk about, which would be what's God. going on currently. I think I think honestly, it was it was a it was a combination of buying into the prevailing narrative of what adoption is. I mm. think there's. Um, there's also the reunion stories that we're exposed to. Right. They're they're put through a, a certain filter, a certain lens. And yep. the problem with those stories is not that the reunions happen. It's that that's perceived as an ending. Right. When it's like, that's like the middle of the story. <laughs> it's like, we did it. And then that's the credits roll. And that's all we got. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not what it is. Um, so one of my friends who who is in reunion, she's she's one of my closest friends. Um, right before I left for Korea, I actually met her sister for the first time. And I was like, what, what do I need to know? And she said to me, well, just know, like, part of what that is is learning to be a family. Mm. So that doesn't just apply to like our biological families. It applies to our adoptive families or, you know, for, for adoptees that have children um, that applies to their children. It's like, you have to go through a process um, through search and also reunion, which I'm still looking there's a process of like even just defining what what family is and i think the the problem and it's not just adoptees who run into this but i would say like the lgbtq community also runs mm. into this is that the way the parameters for what counts as a family are way too narrow mhm mhm and there's people like that model clearly doesn't work for everybody mhm so how did you go about redefining that for yourself in that process <laughs> or have, or is that something that you're, is ongoing, I guess it's probably ongoing process of like figuring it's out definitely what that is. ongoing. I was thinking, you know, that, that family tree project that we're all assigned in elementary school and it's so painful and awful <sighs> for adoptees. And I'm like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to, I don't, I don't have people to put on my tree and then you put it on your tree and you're like, that feels like I'm just imagining things. I, uh, the way I've started explaining, I'm like, it's more like a tumbleweed in my case. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like if I, if I had had the awareness as, as a small child, I would have just taken a crayon, scribbled it on the paper and been like, done. And I, I would have had like, you know, I think the teacher would have been annoyed, but I'd be like, this is my family tumbleweed. Tumbleweed. This is my family I've tumbleweed. not heard yes. that descriptor before. But I kind of like it's it. like it's like a tangled. It's just like a tangled, blobby mess. But then like, it literally it blows, grows like, as it travels. Like right. it's, it grows it's as a, such it a great metaphor for everywhere. chosen family. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. And it's not just like chosen family, but it like it leaves. It's it's like part of the reason they're they're a pain in the ass is because they they leave the seed everywhere that it goes. Oh, so yeah, it, like it grows yeah. more. Scratches um, as your car it up when you run yeah. over it. Oh, please don't run over me. <laughs> Jeez. 
Don't run over the tumbleweeds, Nathan. Oh, man. Nathan is like, Allison gets mad whenever I swerve to try to hit them. And I always forget. Because <laughs> when you hit them, they explode. No, that's not. I, try, yeah. I do try to avoid them. Thanks again for listening to part one of our conversation with Mary Bowers. Lots to process for sure. And again, thank you to Mary for calling in from Korea and sharing so much of her story. Tune in next week for part two, where we're going to dive into a little bit more of the birth search process. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how all of this ties into her competitive eating career. So we have some links in the show notes. Make sure you check those out. And as always, you can find us at John Chi Show on all the social media platforms. You can write us and leave us a message uh, via email by sending that to johnchishow at gmail.com. You can also leave us a message at 972-677-8867. If you feel like supporting the show and you want to find out how to do so, visit us at our website, johnchishow.com. And if you like what you hear each Wednesday and you want to leave us a review on whatever podcast player you're currently listening to this on, we would greatly appreciate it appreciate that as well last but not least you can find me at patrick in the world kj at kj relke and nathan at n Nowak on the interwebs wherever we want to be found thanks again for listening and we will see you next week for part two of our conversation with mary bowers until then john g hey oh